It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Man, I'm, so, I'm so hyped right now. Anything's possible. Oh, my mama. Oh, my mama made it, Anything's possible. days. Jump shot, fade away. This the best Celtics podcast day to day. I get excited about it every night about it. A real C's fan wouldn't want to live their life without it. Banner 18 in the making, we gotta make it. Best squad in the East and still we can't get complacent. Most winning franchise, so the history's ancient. You can tell the mother guys are going plan a vacation. Yeah, Corrales, Packard, and J. King Locked on, trying to get the 18th ring The most in-depth coverage that you ever gonna hear Well-respected in a city like Russell's career It's raining Jays Hey, welcome back This is the Lockdown Celtics Podcast And I want to thank you for making this part of your daily routine We're here for you Monday through Friday Today is the Wednesday show And it's a special one, I think Because we speak to Mirren Fader who is a writer for Bleacher Report. She does some wonderful feature work, including a recent feature on Marcus Smart. We're going to talk to her about the her rise to the Bleacher Report and, and where she got started and her love for basketball. It began at a very young age. And those features on Marcus Smart, uh, on the bribery scandal in college basketball, and the WNBA. There is a lot to get to there. We'll get to that in just a moment. First of all, I want to introduce myself. I'm John Corrales of MassLive.com. I'm one of the hosts here. I'm the one that talked to Mirren, so it's just me for now. I uh, want to thank our sponsors, Hotels.com. Today's show is brought to you in part by Hotels.com. Don't hate like your friend's trip. Book your own with Hotels.com and get rewarded basically everywhere. Hotels.com, be there, do that, get rewarded. Thanks also to Untuck It for sponsoring Locked On Celtics. If you are looking for a great Father's Day idea, their shirts are specifically designed to look great untucked and feel comfortable at work or on the weekend. No tucking or tailoring required. Go to untuckit.com and use the promo code NBA to get 20% off. And also Grip Six Belts. Today's show brought to you by the Ultralight No Hole No Flap Grip Six Belt. It's great for Father's Day. And you can go to Grip Six, the number six, dot com slash lock L O C K E for a special offer. All of you new listeners, I hope you are subscribing to the new free Himalaya podcast app. Super easy to use, has every single podcast that you love or are searching for. It has personally curated playlists just for you, made by the expert podcast tastemaker. So subscribe to Lockdown Celtics on the new Himalaya podcast app. And now, my conversation with Bleacher Report's Mirren Fader. Marin, first of all, thank you for joining the Locked On Celtics podcast. Appreciate you taking some time out to come on. Thanks for having me. You are you are out in the West Coast. Um, enjoying? Are you enjoying good weather? I talked to Sopan Deb <laughs> yesterday, and he was like, "I can't believe that this weather is not as good as I thought it would be." Are you in a place where it's at least nice? I mean, I have been told that I have weather privilege, and so what I think is nice is uh, very nice, and what I think is bad is still very nice. So okay. <laughs> uh, I have no perspective on this. To me, it's freezing, but I understand that's not really what freezing is. <laughs> yeah, considering your audience is mostly in Boston, I should probably just skip past that question. Uh, why don't we start yeah. from the beginning? Because you you are one of my favorite writers. You are just a fabulous writer, and uh, – I want to say up and coming, but I, I think that does you a disservice because um, I think you're here. So, but let's start from the beginning where you started with basketball. Most of your writings about basketball. Let's let's get to when you first got into basketball. It was at a very young age, right? Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you for saying that. But I was in fifth grade. Um, and I saw all these boys running up this hill to the basketball courts. Um, and I was just like, why are they so into this? Like, where are they going? Um, and it was just like this mass exodus of boys and, uh, something just pulled me and I just went with them. Um, and then I just shot a ball and it, I was just like absolutely in love with basketball. I, I can't even explain it. It's so weird. I was just like, I need to do this. I need to be about this. Um, basketball became my life. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I understand that. So <laughs> that's something about it is a, is a draw. And so did you play competitively after that? I did. Yeah, I played throughout all of those years, high school. I played my first year in college. Um, I actually did so much AAU before that. I was like very much in it. Um, played that first year. I went to Lewis and Clark uh, College in Oregon, played there. Um, and then I came back and I transferred and uh, I went to Occidental College. That's where I ended up graduating from. Um, and then I stopped. Um, I wanted to become a sports writer. But I think you know, basketball was so much a part of my life for, you know, a decade and more. And it was just like, I don't know, it teaches you everything, everything, you know, as a sports writer, um, you know, comes from basketball, comes from being an athlete, learning work ethic. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit more because I'm, I'm in a hundred percent agreement that basketball is, is a great in sports in general, but for us specifically basketball, what were the lessons that you learned? Cause I know that you've written that, you, you face obviously challenges. You're, you're a girl trying to play with boys and that comes with its own set of challenges. So what, what have you learned from just playing basketball as that, that applies to you now? You know, just always standing my ground, you know, not only was I a girl playing against the guys, I was also really small, you know, five feet tall. And, you know, you would go to these recruiting camps and these girls would be like six, three, six, four, six, five, and you would get jerseys. Um, and you, I would always get the number one because I was always the smallest <laughs> player at the camp. And, uh, yeah. and I would have to just stand really, really tall and, um, and not act like anything bothered me. And not, you know, I had to grind, I had to scrape, I had to scrap. And it was, you know, it's very much similar in sports writing. You know, when I'm in the locker room and I'm the only woman there, I, I have to stand tall. I have to act like nothing bothers me. And I, I feel like all those years of basketball just like really prepared me for that. And, you know, the odds of making it as a basketball player are similar in a way to the odds of making it as a sports writer. I know they're obviously not the same thing. It's much, 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 much harder to make it as a pro athlete. But I just mean in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of people that want to do it and there's a very small percentage of the people that get to do it. And so I sort of looked at sports writing exactly how I did in basketball, which is you have to give everything and you might not get it. It might not work out. Um, so I think all those challenges that I faced like really prepared me to write. So at what point did you decide, what was it that made you say, I want to cover this sport or cover sports in general? Cause like I said before, you, you do cross over into other sports from time to time. Um, what, what was the thing or, or was it just a gradual evolution that said, I like playing this. I want to write about it. Well, I think I did not enjoy my first year um, at Lewis and Clark College playing. I think that was such a hard year and just realizing that that wasn't the school for me. That wasn't the team for me. Transferring to Oxy, you know, you sort of see the window closing. Like I think every athlete comes to this point where you realize like this is not this dream that I've had for so long. This thing that I've worked for my entire life is not happening. Um, and it was depressing. It was like an identity crisis for me. It was just like, I don't know who I am without this thing. And, but I was so determined, you know, I didn't want to get left behind. I had to figure out like, what do I want to do? And when I was at Oxy, I realized that I was already doing what I've other things that I've always wanted to do. I just never thought of it as a career because I was so focused on basketball, but I had always written, um, my entire life since that first day I picked up a ball because I had to let somebody know. <laughs> um, I had found this thing, this great thing called basketball. And so I had journaled every day since that day. And I was just writing one day um, in the quad at Oxy. And I was like, I should try to be a writer. Like, I love writing. I just didn't see writing as a career. I just saw it as like the thing I did to heal myself, um, to not feel lost. Um, and so I started writing for our school paper. Um, and I became our like men's basketball beat writer. And it made me feel like I was on a team again. Um, and writing started to sort of heal me a bit, but then I realized that when I started writing about other sports, I still felt complete. Like it wasn't basketball that I need to write about. It was just writing that I needed. It's interesting. So the writing seems as therapeutic as it does a, a means of a, an income. Yeah. I think once I started to focus on other athletes stories, I stopped getting lost in my own. And I think that I sort of realized that everyone has a journey and I stopped looking at mine as like a failure. And I just started looking at mine as what made me the writer that I am. Like I, I kind of saw that like 
all the things that I went through gave me an empathetic lens to like listen to people and have them trust me with their stories. And the more I did it, the more I realized I was falling in love with writing because I loved writing, not because I was trying to find a plan B from basketball. Like I realized that this was actually my true passion and this was what I needed to do and not the other thing. This made me so much happier than basketball ever could. And I found a way to like re-enter basketball in a different way. Like I enjoy watching it. I still enjoy playing it. Um, but it was like, it was a transition that took a long time, but I, now I know it was the, it was the right thing for me. So you recently had a tweet that said, I've learned a lot about myself through the athletes I've written about. I'm interviewing them, but also examining my own life. Is this kind of the same thing that you're talking about? Yeah, I think you're sitting across from an athlete and they'll say something and you sort of, it just sort of hits you and it just makes you think about yourself and your own life. And it's not about you. Like I, I'm very, um, as a writer, I'm very strict about not using I, like I was in the elevator with athlete X and we're going here. Like I've only done that once in one story and that was the Lithuania story, but I'm really conscious of doing that because I don't want the story to ever be about me, but I can't help it when I'm reporting. And sometimes an athlete says something that makes me think of myself. Um, and it makes me think of the things that I've gone through. And I realized that, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps I asked them about work ethic because I know what it is like to have to grind for a professional dream. Or, you know, perhaps I'm interested in challenges because I know they're so much a part of it, you know. And I think we all have our things that we come into our interviews with. But I think it's fascinating. I mean, sports writing is really hard and everyone harps on how awful the industry and all these things are true. But it is also so rewarding and so fascinating and so interesting. And part of the reason is because it forces you to look inward. So let's go back to when you got that bug and you started writing. You started writing in college. What was what was was there one point where you said, oh, yeah, I got this. I'm good at this because you're very good at this. Do, do you let me first of all, let me ask you this. Do you think you're good at this? Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I don't think like that. I mean, I have confidence in myself, obviously, which is, you know, how I do the job, but like any writer, man, I am plagued with insecurity like anyone else. Um, but I know, I feel like, I feel like confidence is a process. And when I first started writing, I didn't have it, but now, um, I am six years out of college. I'm sort of, you know, I'm gaining confidence and I'm getting closer to how I want to sound while realizing I may never get to how I want to sound, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think, I think the moment, I think the moment that I realized that, you know, I really wanted to do this, maybe not necessarily that I was good at this, but that I could do this was being at the OC register. So I started at the Orange County register and I was there for four years out of college and I was living in LA, but I was driving to OC every day to interview people. And anyone who has done that drive knows that it's hell and it's horrible. And the five is forever awful. Um, <laughs> but that's when I realized I really loved it because I would be tired. I would have driven, you know, a hundred miles, but the interview was so riveting. And, you know, it was a soccer player you never heard of in the middle of Fullerton, but I was like, damn, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Like I would just come back in the car and I'd just be so pissed that I have to drive, but I would just be so exhilarated. Like, oh my God, I can't wait to write this feature, you know? And it wasn't like anyone was saying, oh, she's good. In fact, nobody was, um, you know, Twitter following was not a thing. Um, but it was the joy and the doing that I had that was like, I'm coming back day after day. Cause I love this. Like, it's not about the attention for me. It's about what I'm doing. And I know that like, I'm happy with this. And so, yeah, so that's the moment I think. Yeah, there's a reason why I asked you if you think you're good, because there's, I, I, I kind of knew that was going to be your answer uh, <laughs> because none of us think we're good. Do we, yeah. do, do any no. of our, do we like I, how many yeah. times like you write something like, God, this sucks. Oh, I'm going to send it in, right? Like that's, I can't tell you how many times I've written something and be like, Oh God, I hope this works. I hope this works. Uh, So it's, it's kind of funny. I I want to hear your mentality on that. You know what? I've made so many writers friends, writer friends this year. And I feel like that's the one, that's the one thing that has bonded us all. Somebody will be like, this was really good. And then the person will be like, are you kidding me? That was <laughs> like, trash. And so it's just like your favorite's favorite is insecure. So I mean, yeah. that's normal. Isn't it? No, like, it, tell me if you get this reaction. Like you tell somebody something's good and they're like, oh yeah. And they start telling you all of the things that went wrong with it. Like, 
Oh my god! Like that's the natural reaction. Like, oh yeah, they, hey, this was good. Like, oh god, and I, I had this problem. I had that problem. I was hoping to overcome this. It's it's, it's really funny. Let me ask you about Twitter since you brought up Twitter. Um, has Twitter helped you in any way? Like, just interacting with people when you're writing, or has it hurt you as far as the way people react to what you what you put out there? I mean, I have a different mentality to Twitter than I think most. I mean, you can see from my Twitter, it is a very actually accurate representation of who I am. It's like nerdy coffee shop writing musings, uh, my stories, uh, insights, basketball. But like, I never want to be the person that's just like tweeting all my reactions and just here's what I think. And here's pictures of me at parties. Like, I, I mean, we all got to make social media work for us in our lives. And, um, I just do not want to be the person on Twitter 24 seven. Um, so I'm very minimal when it comes to tweeting. And I think that that's helped me in a sense because I've just made the conscious conscious choice to focus on the writing and the transcribing and the interviewing and the reporting and the traveling that takes up so much time. And like, I've never, I've never booked a job and they were like, you know, we, we want you because we like your Twitter voice. Like we think you're clever and it's cause I'm not, but like, I'm, you know, when I realized that it wasn't about that, I felt less pressure to be on there. And everyone says, Oh, you have to be on there. You have to be on there. You have to be social media. Well, social media doesn't teach you timing of a story. So social media doesn't teach you like character development. And so I just, I think that I've used it for the good parts. I've met incredible people on there. I've met my mentor on there and then we've forged a relationship in real life. Um, I've met tons of friends on there. That's what I enjoy it for. But all the other crazy stuff, I'm just, I'm not going to be a part of. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, no. Look, I'm I'm telling you, it's it's not a bad place to be. I feel like Twitter has gotten super, super toxic. Like it was always toxic. I think it's getting much more so like people, I don't mind feedback. I don't mind negative feedback. Some people hit you with negative feedback. That's just biting and personal. And you're like, Right. You know, it's just so it's so like, why would you even just tell me what you think in a constructive way? Like, oh, I didn't like this thing that you wrote. Like, okay, great. I'm happy to hear the feedback because you could always get better. But and now as a as a woman, I feel like you open yourself up unintentionally just by the phase, by just by being a woman by putting yourself on social media, there's a, a super, super toxic element of, oh, here's this woman trying to talk about basketball. That's a man's domain. Have you, have, has that hit you or is, is you, have you been able to avoid it because of the way you handled Twitter? I mean, I have experienced it for sure, but I try to avoid it. And that's part of why I'm not on there a lot. And I realized that that sucks, but you know, Hey, like we have to protect ourselves in a way, which really sucks. Um, you know, because so many women's jobs do depend on being on social media and they don't have the luxury to be like, Hey, I'm not going to do this cause I don't want to. So, you know, it really sucks. I got, um, when I wrote that transgender story on Andrea Yearwood back in December, I got like, just like, I mean, and it just was like that for like three weeks. Um, I've never gotten messages like that before. Um, it was, it was disgusting. I really, um, the internet is just not a great place for women. I don't have Instagram. I'm really just, I'm really just not into this stuff. Honestly, I, I just think it's just not a safe place for us. It's, it's just so toxic. And like I said, you, you try to glean the best out of it and you make friends and you meet like honest to God, good people on there. But mm-hmm. man, it, there are just so many people that are just not even people. They're literally oh, yeah. not people. No, right. <laughs> they're, they're literally not. <laughs> Uh, they are literally not humans. <laughs> uh, so, and I, I hate to, I hate to bring this up with every, uh, woman who covers sports, but this is still the, uh, age in which we live. Like I, you are a phenomenal sports writer and that's the end of it, except it's not the end of it. And it, unfortunately, so do you feel any responsibility as a person out now you're covering uh you're writing for bleacher report you're you're on the staff you're you're at a major outlet your stuff is really getting out there your your name is your your profile is growing um and do you feel a responsibility at all to say 
I don't know, advocate for, for women in sports? Or do you feel like just by being out there and doing the job well that you're doing that? I mean, it's a great question. I think it's more the latter for me. I, th- I feel like, um, you know, if I were to be in a place where Ramona Shelburne is or, or somebody like that, who I deeply respect and admire, you know, perhaps I would be more vocal. I think that right now I'm at the stage of my career where the things that I'm doing for women are so much behind closed doors because I think, um, unfortunately, you know, when you advocate and you do these things, people put you into a box and they put you into a woman, a woman's box. And I've been in the woman and it's very hard to get out. And, and what I mean by that is I covered women way before it was cool to cover women in the WNBA. Like I've covered women my entire career. And despite the fact, for example, when I was writing for ESPNW on the side while I was staff at Orange County Register, I was covering Cal State Fullerton baseball, um, nationally ranked team. Like they went to the World Series, College World Series that year. And nobody knew me from that. They were just like, oh, you write about women. Um, and I just saw the way that they would look at you when you write about women. And so it's been this tension my entire career where, okay, I'm writing about women because I believe women's stories are just as valuable and they're, they're just as interesting, right? I'm after the interesting, but I'm not, I'm not an advocate. I'm not, you know, cheerleading. I'm not doing things like that for women. What I am doing behind closed doors is mentoring women. Um, I went to back to my high school this year, um, and mentored the kids there. And there were a lot of women that, you know, came up to me and I feel, you know, really, um, responsible about the work that I do there. And, you know, every week I take about two to three calls from aspiring sports writers and many of them are women. And, you know, these are all things that I just do behind closed doors because I want to help people because I want to especially help women get into this business. And like, I will write emails to editors saying, check out this woman, check out that woman. Cause I believe like tacit tweets that just say like, Hey, higher women are not as powerful as like true, you know, advocacy and allyship, which is actually like making moves. So, you know, I'd rather do it like behind closed doors than just be a voice in the crowd. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, all right, let's, why don't we take a, a moment? We'll take a break. We'll come back. Cause I want to talk to you about stories that you've written. Uh, okay. after the break, we'll start with Marcus smart since this is a Celtics podcast and, uh, that's where I think anybody who's listening to this may have started reading you. Uh, the Marcus Smart story is great. And then we'll talk about some of the other stuff because you've written about a lot of great things that I want to talk about. We'll be right back here on the Locked On Celtics podcast. NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're up to date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan, rejecting the screen, the Locked On NBA podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet wherever you get your podcasts. So you wrote about Marcus Smart back in February, and I, I love the way you set it up because... Right away, it's like Marcus Smart doesn't take his eyes off the court, not once. You're talking to him, and he's, like, looking at the court. And you can tell the intensity, even though he's being 
warm and answering questions. First of all, Marcus Smart is <laughs> great to talk to, right? Like, yes. Isn't he so misunderstood? Just, he's like everybody should interview Marcus Smart. He's he's like the best, and and the possibility of the Celtics trading him in an Anthony <sighs> Davis deal, I'm like, no. Selfishly, I'm like, I I, I love talking to that guy, right? Um, but at the same time, this intensity. So your just give me your impression of Marcus Smart in the in the op- opportunity you had to talk to him for this feature. So I'm just sitting next to him, and I, I think that the younger me would have been like offended, like why isn't he looking at me? But I'm like, no, it's not about you. He wants to be on the court, you know. And I think I just like felt it. I just I just felt this like urgency next to him. Like he just he was like looking at it. He wanted to like eat the court. Like he literally wanted to like eat the court like he was just so into it and um you know everyone is just chilling like taking off their shoes it's very light you know you've been to shoot around a million times and he's he's just like completely locked in and um it's hard as you know when you only have a few minutes to kind of like get to the soul of a person no big deal um before shoot around but like <laughs> but i think you know like just figure it out um 5000 words later but um i think he was so attentive and I think people think he's like this asshole because he's so competitive. But like when Marcus Smart is talking to you, he is like so friendly and um, engaged. Even if he's focused on the court, he was just like gave really good answers, detailed answers. He's like one of those people that can come off as like extremely confident, but extremely humble at the same time, like absolutely sure of himself, but still, still like ready to prove everyone wrong. You could, you could feel that. Yeah, that's that's a very accurate depiction of of smart. Uh, I think the the real great part of this particular story um, is the uh, it's the other people that you've spoken to, um, especially the uh, uh, Phil Forte and the Fortes, um, who he when a lot of Celtics fans remember the Marcus Smart punching the picture in his hotel room after the Lakers loss a couple years ago. You might not have known is that Phil is the first guy that he called. He's in the ambulance, right? And he's calling yeah. Phil from the ambulance. So what, talk to us a little bit here about the, that relationship and, and how that developed and why Marcus Smart is so close to them. They've known each other since I guess Marcus was playing in like third grade, um, with Forte senior son. And, um, it's, He's kind of like Phil Forte Sr. is kind of like a father figure in a way for him. It's somebody, you know, when somebody knows, accepts you and in all your failures and all of your successes, you know, you can completely, absolutely be yourself in front of them. Like, that's what that family is to him. Like, Marcus doesn't need to be a shooter. He doesn't need to be um, great at this, great at that. He just needs to be himself around them. And I think once I figured out that they had that type of relationship, like it wasn't just a close friend. It was like a family thing. I absolutely needed to circle in on those two. And I got most of what I got from them. Um, and I think that when I saw how close Forte Sr. was with Marcus's mom, I was like, okay, this is definitely uh, an insight into her. Cause I had heard so much about the mom, but not really about like who she was. And Forte Sr. was like the one person that could kind of like paint the portrait for me of who she was. Um, and I think that that scene about punching the frame was so important to have in there because People didn't know that he kept a little tiny piece of glass as like a reminder of you can't do this anymore. Like I think it was like this taboo thing that just has happened that if you love Marcus, you're like, okay, I accept this. This is his passion coming out. If you don't love him and you hate him, you're like, this, this guy is crazy. He doesn't know how to handle himself. Nobody really understood like the maturation and the growth that came from that incident that very much has to do with the mentorship and guidance of Forte Sr. And he still has that piece of glass. Like that's a thing. That yeah. yeah. It looks at it often. It's like one of those things, like it could have gone this way. My life, my career, my money could have gone this way. I mean, right. That happened before his contract. Right. Uh, and I've heard him talk about it. Like if it, if it had gone a different way, he could have like sliced a tendon. He could have lost use of, of his, of his hand, like he, or, he, or fingers. Yeah. He was fully like, I could, my career could have ended here. That's wild. As wild, because you're also you're just picturing a uh, Celtics without Marcus Smart. Right. You're like, how? Um, but yeah, it's crazy. Um, I want to. When you are interviewing people like this, you talked about. You mentioned like once you realized the relationship. What is it that allows you to? 
do that. I guess this is a question for aspiring writers. Yeah. When you are in this place, because when, when, when we're doing features, we're talking to a million people and where along the way did you say, Oh, wait a minute. This is, this is a, a special kind of relationship. What is it that makes that click? And it's the, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's the details. It's, it's, knowing when you've got gold and you've been on the phone for like an hour and you finally just got it. And, and how, I guess I'll back up is, you know, for example, like I'm on the phone with Forte senior and I was like, you know, so much has been made about the death of his mom, but like, I feel like I just don't even know much about her. I just, I just know that Marcus is crying. I don't know about her. Like, tell me about her. And he's like, well, you know, she's very humble, very caring. Um, you know, didn't need a lot of money. And so immediately I think doesn't need a lot of money. Marcus contract year. Let's, let's talk about money. Mm -hmm. And then, um, he says, yeah, like, you know, she rarely went shopping for herself. And then that's when you press, you're like, so like, what would she wear? Like, what was she somebody that went shopping this much or that much? And he was like, you know, it's funny. She used to just wear his tattered AAU shirts. And I'm like, bam, that's a detail. You have to know, like, that's the detail. That's the type of detail and specificity you're pushing for. If you would have just stopped at she's caring and humble, you're not getting that. So it's like you as the writer has to push and push and push and push. Or when he said, like, she's hard on Marcus, I was like, can you give me an example? Like, do you remember? I know it was so, I always say, I know it's so long ago, but can you think of a time where she was just like lighting into him? And then you get the anecdote about he was horsing around, got stitches. She wanted to give him the stitches. So like when you're a writer, you're trying to like, you're not just trying to um, tell the reader why somebody's good at basketball. You're trying to paint a picture of the person and everyone around him because all those people around him made him into the person he is. And he's got to be a person now that's changed. And those people change too. And so you're looking for character. You're looking for details. You're looking for color. Like my whole thing is color. I, I'm interviewing people and they're telling me things in black and white. And my job is to literally paint like a rainbow for the reader. And so that comes from hours and hours and hours of talking on the phone. Like, you know, I didn't even touch the, the punching the frame incident until like maybe two hours in with Forte Senior. Um, you got to structure your interviews like that. You're not going to start with the most emotionally poignant things you're going to sort of build up and build up and build trust and build trust and then you sort of you got to know when to kind of go in for the kill that's i mean it sounds like it's listening and being able to follow up understanding when the follow-up has to happen right and it's and it's and it's confidence because it took years to be able to do that like when i was at the register i did not know when to go in for the kill or when to follow up you know, I was awkward. I was nervous. I was like, if I ask this follow-up question, like, does that make me look stupid? Are they going to think that, like, I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm asking for this very weird detail. And the more you get older, the more you realize it's not stupid. You're doing your job. So, like, um, any detail you have about, you know, Marcus being in the training room with um, the trainer and, like I needed to know what drill they were doing. Like I needed to know how he was reacting or being in when I was in the locker room, you know, knowing like, okay, I'm going to include that it's pasta and spinach and chicken. It's not just like there's food over there. It's like, let's be specific, you know? And that comes from like not being afraid to observe and report. Like, I think a lot of people think if you want to be a writer, you have to be a great writer. True. But you have to have great reporting. So if you don't have great reporting, like you're not going to have great writing. And the other way, too, if you're a great reporter and you know how to report, but you don't know how to put it all together on the page, like it's not going to be great writing. And I think that's the thing people don't understand is that, like, yeah, I'm a writer, but at my core, at my heart, most of what I do is reporting. I usually have like two days to pull a story together, as in like write it in two days. And it's a frantic two days, as we discussed <laughs> earlier. <laughs> it's not going well. I think the first half is like, oh, this is terrible. Everyone's going to see that I suck. And then uh, it gets slightly better, slightly less terrible, somewhat OK, eh, not awful. And then it just gets, you know, better from there. But, um, yeah, it's a whole problem. Uh, the the importance of an editor, I think, is also oh. I mean, having somebody to go through and say, nope, this isn't – with with your – the first time an editor really just took a hatchet to your work, what was your reaction? 
Oh, absolute meltdown, tears, <laughs> inconsolable. I mean, I called up my mentor, Jeff, um, Jeff Perlman. I was like, Jeff, like, it's over. Like, everything <laughs> is over. Like, this guy completely wrecked it. Like, I don't even want to put my name on it. Like, all this stuff. And he was just like, Miran, if you spell all the names right, everyone will be happy. And he was right. <laughs> everyone loved it. <laughs> and nobody thought of what I thought of. But, oh, my God. I, I mean, let's just... Can we just acknowledge how important editors are? Oh my God. Like, yes. Yeah. If you look at the progression from that point where I was just so scarred, so butthurt, so insecure till now, I'm like, you know, it doesn't, I don't cry. It's just like, I'm fascinated by the changes that they want to make. I'm like intrigued by how they want to like change the story. Like, Oh, the idea for structure for this. And, you know, Bleacher, thank God, like that we have great editors. Um, Jake Lund nerd ian blair elliot ponnell and, and formerly christina tapper i mean these people have had my back in a lot of ways and like people don't see the trenches that you go through with your editors they just don't it's like an editor has to know how you sound and how you want to sound so you know if they don't understand like what you do it's, it's just gonna be really hard for you to work together and like i don't they check on me they're always just like how are you doing how are you feeling um like i feel sad because there's not a lot of editors out there and, you know, young writers desperately need mentorship as I did and do. And, um, yeah, it just, we need more editors cause they, they are what makes the piece, you know, like they're with you through it. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to Marcus smart. The editors are the Marcus smarts of oh, the journalism great. world. I Incredible. Mean, isn't it? I mean, they, they're the ones that do all the dirty work. They're the ones that, that relish the, the, um, the work that doesn't get the spotlight, like our names are on the pieces and right. I, I read your feature and I think obviously with good reason, those are all the words that you've written. Um, and they are, but they've also been back and forth with an editor who says, what about, how about saying it this way? How about saying it that way? So, um, you have to have a Marcus smart type mentality of just really wanting to dive into the minutia and it's all about the team and it's all about putting a win. Each good feature is a win. And I think having good editors that that's, that's the type of mentality that you need. It's a mentality that I don't have. I want my name yeah. on the thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, such a great metaphor though. It's so true. Like every time after a story, like I make sure to, you know, to thank them and say, you know, I really liked the way you challenged me here. Like, thank you for this or thank you for thinking of that. And they're just like, why are you thanking me? It's my job. <laughs> And I'm just like, because, you know, like editors don't, they don't get what we get, you know, they don't get people saying like, great job on this, but oh my God, are they ever part of the process? And for that matter, copy editors, mm -hmm. copy editors have saved my life in so many different, you know, avenues and God, when we get rid of copy editors, we get rid of another Marcus Smart type of layer. Right, right. Like, look, I'm not here talking to your editor. I'm talking to you. Right. That's, that's there's. You have to have like the people say, oh yeah, that's my job. They they just there's some people that they just enjoy that level of work, and I appreciate it because that's not the level of work that I would appreciate. And I think if you're a writer, you're a writer, and that's where you are. And the editors do their jobs; they're great, they're vital. Uh, so just want to give a shout out to the editors out there because yes. they never get there. They never get their due. Love it. Why don't we take another break? We'll come back. You have another feature and another great topic, the NCAA bribery scandal, which the NCAA, as I always say, is a corrupt organization. Your, not, my, not your words, my words. Uh, we'll talk about it after the break right here on the Locked On Celtics podcast. Aaron, you've written so many good things. There's a lot of things that I'd love to talk to you about. Um, two things that I, I, I really fascinate me, the WNBA pay, which you recently wrote about, um, and, and their fight, not just for we want more money, but the respect that comes along with that, and the NCAA bribery scandal, which, God, I could do a whole other <laughs> – Series of podcasts. I think it was like serial type podcast with the NCAA. Uh, 
in that piece, there, there's one line that, or two lines that really, I think, stick out and set up the whole thing. Uh, after you set up, the FBI released its findings and dark underbelly of basketball and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you say that most of the people here, the main objects, were, quote, mostly low-level sneaker employees and advisors, mostly men of color. And that stood out to me because it feels like the people up top and throughout, minus like Rick Pitino, like a couple, a couple of those guys got caught up in this, but mostly low-level people. The, the numbers guys, the it's not the kingpins that get caught. It's the ones that run the numbers, uh, taking into the street, like the dealers type of people. Um, and then on the other side, the men of color who got swept up in this. Why was that important to get right up at the top for you? Because it's true. And because like when you're diving into a story, you want to, um, you want to parachute in, in a different way than other people are. Right. So like I had seen headlines about like, just without context, like assistant coaches possibly facing prison or, um, five-star prospect, uh, being banned from the NCAA, but there was no like, context to like who these people were why they why this was happening to them people i mean i have never heard of half of these people before this like i knew of tony bland because i had covered the fairfax westchester rivalry but like the other assistant coaches no idea so i'm like okay um looks to me like there's a pattern emerging and that's the pattern and you know i think people needed to know it up front like hey we're we're going to talk about you know, something that others aren't, which is like, yeah, this is the reality of the situation is like the people highest up, nothing's happening to them. And, um, people of color and low level people, these are the people being punished. And so once you get it established up front, like, okay, these people are getting punished. You then set the stage for, but you don't really even know these people. Like, who are these people? Like, you know, nothing about their stories. You just know, like they're facing X months in prison. And I think, um, any long form writer, like your goal is to show the human, the human underside to things. Like I could have written a whole thing about like the NCAA being corrupt and not paying players, but you know, that wasn't the tone that we wanted to strike. We wanted to strike like a deeply human story about what happens when you get caught up and lost in this system. The, one of the main characters here is Tony Bland who accepted a $4,100 bribe. So on the one side, you have people in here saying, well, he broke the rules. On the other side, you have people who say, but, okay, $4,100. Like, that's bad, but is it enough to cost him his entire future, his career? Is there a point here where a guy like Tony Bland can come back from something like this? Or Go ahead. It's really tough. And I think the what the first thing that you laid out is like, I think they're both true. It's like he was in the wrong. Yeah, he broke the law. But did he deserve to like have a wrench through his entire career? Like, no, um, I think that he's not coming back to college. Um, could he pl- could he coach at like high school, uh, maybe G League, NBA overseas? Like maybe um, it just First of all, he's he's being sentenced tomorrow, so we'll see um, what happens to him to see if he gets any prison time. Hopefully not, but um, yeah, I think it's it's very hard to come back. And I think that was the that was the hardest part about writing this piece is that like I picked two people that don't really have much synergy, except they were both um, they were both kind of like caught in the system, and um, they were both black men, and it was hard because Tony's kind of more tragic than Brian in a way because it's like. He might literally be done from here. Brian still has a shot. And so this story went through nine drafts. Talk about great editing. Ian Blair, oh, my God, um, stuck with me through this. And uh, he he was the one that helped me better structure this because I it was hard to deal with the fact that Tony's trajectory was so different than Brian's. Mm-hmm. And for Tony um... – do you think he was treated differently because of his color? Um, I mean, I think 
I think if you're looking at this in the context of what happens to men who look like Tony and how aggressively they are targeted and pursued and investigated historically, contextually, yes. Um, I think that's sort of why you had the unequal um, outcomes for, you know, what's happening to all these assistant coaches and all these low level employees is they have this in common. Um, they are men of color. So um, I do. Um, I don't I don't know um, how it would happen any other way because we, this is what it is. This is what we've seen. This is what we've seen for decades, um, for years. Um, especially because these payments have been going on for so long and it, and the only people that are getting punished are, uh, men of color. You look at AAU basketball, like why is AAU basketball targeted in ways that, you know, other sports, summer leagues, um, aren't. And, and it has a lot to do with that, which is why I wanted to include, um, Don Jackson in his commentary on that as far as like somebody who has actually, um, you know, been a veteran attorney and, and seen these cases up hand, he was like, look, there's a real disparity between how African-American student athletes and coaches are treated than other people. Um, but Tony was somebody I chose because he was so, um, he was so beloved by this LA community. Like if you live here, you know, Tony, um, and I met, and I met Tony years before and I saw the way people were just like totally, you know, transfixed by him. And so, so I thought his story was some, you know, was one that people were not telling. And were they not telling it because of his color? I don't know. I just think like assistant coaches rarely get their stories told. Um, and then when it comes to uh, Brian Bowen, he's he's going to try to make a comeback. And he went over to, to Australia, uh, had a kind of a tough time there. He's going to try to come back and play in the NBA. But more interesting than that is he is suing Adidas. Right. This is this is a hell of a play for for this guy. And if if this gets success, if he succeeds in any way, even if he loses the suit but exposes Adidas in their practices, Nike could be next. Like, is there? Do you have a feeling here that that lawsuit with Bowen has the, the potential to be as big as? as that could, could maybe shake up a lot of what's happening in, in college basketball? I mean, it could definitely shake things up. Um, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily predict, but I think just him filing it kind of shook things up in a way um, because his situation is so interesting because to our knowledge, like he didn't know about the payments. Again, that's what his father maintains. That's all we know. But, you know, this is somebody whose life was like forever altered by decisions of people that were not him. And like Adidas and all these people made money off of him to which he received none. And he had to go all the way to Australia. So I think just by virtue of like him having been this exile, having been this like uh, wearing the scarlet letter has already shaken things up in a way. And he's doing really well right now. And so I think you're seeing, like, I believe this morning, a top prospect um, said he was going to play in New Zealand. Um, I think he sort of might be like the first person to show that it is not the end of the world to leave America and go play somewhere else. I think a lot of prospects are looking at the NBL as a viable as a viable option. Excuse me. Um, but it's not fun it, and it's not necessarily fair in his op- in his chance. So, yeah, I, I think the the possibility and I forget who it was. I think earlier this morning, another prospect decided to go overseas and play um, rather than go to college. I forget exactly what was happening. It's interesting that that that's becoming an option for players if college isn't working out or for some reason something like this happens and you get shut out there are options for these guys to go play somewhere else. And it's, I wonder how much good it's going to do because you're sending 18 year old kids to go play in a big time men's league with no regard for their development, as opposed to like going to the NBA directly out of high school where they are invested. It's a $9 billion league and, they they want to bring you along and send you to the G League if you have to. You go to the NBL or wherever else. They're like, whatever. You're not you're not even one of us. So why do we have to play you minutes and develop you, right? Like that's that's difficult for him. 
it's difficult. It's also like, and, and that's one of the fortunate places to play. I mean, I went to Lithuania and saw LaMelo Ball playing for a team that didn't do a single sprint in a month. And I'm like, <laughs> how? I visibly, I visibly remember throwing up at AAU practice in seventh grade because we ran like 17 after 17 because this girl didn't make it. So, um, <laughs> like, how are you a professional club and not sprinting? Um, so, you know, like, if you go to one country, you might be challenged. You go to another, you might not be at all. So, like, this is not the solution. The NCAA has to, at this point, come up with a way to compensate them. Um, and I do feel like public opinion is shifting on that. And I do feel like in our lifetimes, we may see something um, that resembles that. But it has been a slow journey. And all these kids are sort of trying to find their place in the world as a result. Um, and it's really hard. Not, you know, Brian's parents moved with him to Australia. Not every family can do that. Not every family's LeVar Ball that can do that as well um, for Lithuania. Um, I think we're talking about a very, very, very small percentage of elite kids that are trying to find their way. But there's like thousands of others that are going to get lost in the shuffle that are never going to have the opportunity to play overseas. So, you know, they continue to risk injury and all these things here in America. And, you know, they're just there just has to be some sort of way to figure this out. You know, as somebody who has covered young prospects for a long time, I'm always like fascinated by um, do they really want this or is this like their parents dream or is this some other dream? Like, are they just they just want to get on ball as life. They just want to get on overtime. They just want to get on Bleacher Report. And it's like we live in such a culture of um, digitized success. Like, I, I wonder if is NBA even the end goal anymore? I think a lot of people just want to be online and stuff. So I don't know. I think the whole thing is interesting. I just love the idea. Everybody just wants to be online. It's so perfect <laughs> nowadays. Uh, let's. I, I, I want to wrap it up by talking quickly about the WNBA. Their, se their season has begun. This is the last season under the current collective bargaining agreement. And you've written uh, in the past about the WNBA's fight for higher pay, which is always met for somebody who is extremely online like me. It's always met by a bunch of idiots who are, are like, well, you can't make what the NBA makes. The, they've opted out of their collective bargaining agreement, and after this season, they don't have a contract. They're fighting for a fair share of the whatever revenue that they're making. Can you just kind of get into a little bit about what that fight is because in your piece you wrote about the struggle for a WNBA uh, all-star trying to find a place just to work out and make not great money, but, and then also passing up opportunities to go overseas. Like I don't think people really realize the entire cycle of the, the year long grind of a WNBA player. Can you kind of get into here's here's me saying here's a million things. Can you please briefly <laughs> talk about them? Yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, uh, we saw Brianna Stewart get injured overseas um, because she had to to make enough money to support herself. And now she is out for the entire year. And so basically what these players are saying is we should not have to go overseas like Brianna. We should not have had what happened to her happen to us. We should be able to make uh, a lot of money here. So we don't have to injure our bodies. We don't have to hurt ourselves. We don't have to make ourselves tired doing like oh, way, way, way over what the normal pro basketball player does. But um, they need support and they need support from a couple of places. They need support from the NBA, who they are asking for um, more investment in their league. Um, the NBA has maintained that, well, the WNBA has not made money all this time. So why would we invest more? Um, and so that's a challenge. They're still trying to, you know, leverage more support there, but they need also TV deals and sponsorships and, and more airtime. And those things we have seen, um, come through this year. So that's positive. That's, that's helping more visibility. Um, but what it comes down to is finding people who authentically want to invest in the WNBA. And so, um, more marketing that's geared towards these women so that if you invest in them, and you, uh, you see what happens as a result of that, like more visibility, then the thought is they will have more revenue. But a lot of it is also media coverage. So WNBA players receive only like 4% of the media coverage. I think that's the number for women in general. So 
it's very hard to make money when you're only seen 4% of the time in media. So um, that's a major focus as well. Um, but I do think things are changing a bit. I mean, I've never seen this type of energy for the WNBA. And of course, like, as you see so many people advocating for it now, there's this whole other course of like, why are you talking about the WNBA, bro? Get out of my timeline, blah, blah, blah. So now my timeline is clogged with both of those. Um, (laughs) so yes, I know you've seen it too. So, um, a lot to be positive about. Um, there's like actual WNBA beat writers now, but, um, I think what it will take is that, women writers like myself not being the ones that are the only ones writing WNBA features. And I know there's so many women who are like, no, I want to do this. This is my passion. I want to write about WNBA players. And that's awesome. And I support that. But there should, you know, if we're going to do this, then there should be like men also writing about women, not just women writing about women. Right. I mean, if we're talking about equality, um, the, the, um, the, the, the buzzword has always been tolerance, but that's not right. It's, it's equality. And if we're getting to actual equality, then frankly, half the conversation that we had here, not half, but that about you being a woman doesn't even happen because it's not, it's not important anymore. Um, and the fact that uh, a, a lot of these things getting separated into male, female, it doesn't happen anymore. If you want real equality, then it, does, it doesn't matter. Uh, we talk about like things like load management in the NBA and how the Toronto Raptors got it right with Kawhi Leonard by sitting him out so often. Meanwhile, we're asking women to play a full season and then <laughs> after their season is over, go play a full professional season overseas and then come back and play. Like there's no off season. You know, load management. There's no load management. There's you. You've got to go play in Europe or Asia or somewhere to make the money to live a professional athletes some semblance of a professional athlete's life versus i mean some people in in the WNBA they're making like 50 grand a year i mean when we talk about you know full circle like my dream to play in the WNBA all those years like i would watch my friends go play overseas and they'd go to germany and they'd go to all these places and um i would talk to them about like how's it going like all the girls on our older teams and stuff and like they were just absolutely miserable I mean, they were just miserable and they like wouldn't get their checks on time. And, um, <laughs> they were just, yeah, like, and then if they lost, like they definitely weren't going to get a check and they would just be like in the middle of nowhere in just like these gyms. And I, I just thought to myself, I was like, I don't even want this anymore. Like, I don't even want to do this anymore. Like, and then when I went to Lithuania to like for a month, I was kind of living like the overseas baller life in a way. I showed up to practice every day. Like I would dribble up the court and it was really cool for me to sort of like actualize my dream by being over there and like being like, well, I kind of did like make it in a different way. But you know, I was like, I would never do this. Like this is so hard. Mm -hmm. And I think of these women having to do this and it's just, man, like people have no idea how lonely that is. Like I would just be in my hotel room, just like so lonely, just so lonely. Just there was, I would just stare at the wall. Like there's nobody to talk to, like there's nothing. And that's exactly what it is for a lot of these American imports. Like you don't speak the language. You, the food is so different. It's, it's very hard. And so unless you've been in those situations, it's hard for you to understand like what you're really asking these women to do. That's, uh, man, those stories are, I've heard them, I've lived them. Like I, I was out in Greece briefly and, and that was, I spoke the language. I had family that was a couple of hours away and it's still, I remember that lonely life sitting in a room, like, you know, whatever. And I, and I like the food, like all of that stuff. Like I can't imagine being somewhere that's, you take away even that level of familiarity and then on top of it for women to have to do it on top of all the others, like you get no off season. Um, it's the, and the reason I laughed about the not getting your check is everybody who's gone overseas, like unless you've played for like the top elite level teams, everyone who's played at the lower level is owed money. Like no one, literally no one has gotten all of the money that they're owed, which is just, it's, it's the one constant thread. Like if you ever heard from, if you ever talked to somebody who's played overseas, just ask them, so how much money do they owe you? And it's just, it's the one common thing. Staggering. Um, It's unbelievable. Uh, but back to the, I'm excited about the WNBA. Um, 
this is, I think, the most, uh, I think you touched on, but like, it's the, the most momentum the league has had. Like, there's, there's a lot of, and I think a lot of the guys on NBA Twitter are, are really pushing hard. I think partly because of what you said, like, we know that we have to be like, look, we believe in this. I love the basketball. I think, I think the people who are trashing it, just, they just aren't watching it. Like, they just don't care to watch and see how fast and how good these women are. Um, so I think, I think there is some level of guys maybe going a little over the top with it because we kind of have to, we have to kind of throw it out there and say, Hey, come on, watch this, watch this, watch this just to drive up the interest. Uh, so I'm excited for it and I'm glad that, you know, your piece and other pieces are, are going to put a spotlight on what these women are going through and and maybe getting them a fair share and getting the NBA involved. I think that's a super important thing that the NBA definitely needs to get involved and invest in this to 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 make it grow. And I think too it's like some you know some writers like me it's like it's it's like I don't know how to explain this. Like my job is to write features. Like my job is to write human features and I never see my job as like my job is to advocate for an issue. Like my job is to do this and I think there's like so many weird lines being blurred about like you know writers and and advocacy and all these things and um like I I just wish that people approach writing about women because they're interesting, right? Like I want to write about women because they're interesting just like men are. They have cool stories just like men do not coming into it. Like I have to write, like I want to cheerlead the WNBA and advocate and all these things. It's like, I think real progress will come when like, we're just writing an article about, you know, Christy Tolliver cause she has great handles, not because we want to ask her about how hard it is being a woman. And I'm, I'm so conscious of that. Like I'm so, I've written so many features about women just because they're great at basketball. And, and you know, people think, well, why aren't you speaking up about the WNBA? And I'm like, that's my contribution. Like just looking at women, like they're human and worthy of story. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's also at some point early on, there, there has to be a, a push. Like if you watch, if you watch Castaway. No, Tom Hanks. Okay. So there's a scene in Castaway where he's trying to get off the Island and he, he's trying to build a raft. He can't get off the Island until a, a piece of plastic comes along and he can use it as a sail. And the sail is the thing that pushes them over the waves and gets them out into the ocean. And I think at some point here, all of the things that make the WNBA interesting is those are all great stories that need to be written. I think there also needs to be a push. Like the, the, I think the WNBA is close. There is interest. There's, it's much more public. And I think this just needs to have. I think it needs to have a push and and it might be the collective bargaining agreement that makes that push this fight over what's fair and this added interest. Like there's a push that I think needs to happen. So once you get over that last wave, it's like, all right, now it's part of our consciousness. It's for anybody now who's hating is just white noise and, and beyond the, the tinge of every, peace having the end you're fighting for something that that'll that will all go away after this push does that make sense or is that yeah. wrong yeah is that no, wrong no no it's just it's gonna yeah it's gonna take time i think that's what it is it's just all of it is gonna take time it is i think that's correct Marin, i want to thank you this has been a, a wonderful conversation you're super interesting and you're a fabulous writer and i appreciate you taking time to come out and uh, talk to us here on the Locked On Celtics podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you have not read Mirren's stuff, you are missing out. She is one of the best writers in the business. So go ahead and check her stuff out on Bleacher Report. Thanks again to our sponsors today, Hotels.com. Be there, do that, get rewarded on Hotels.com. Untuck it, go to UntuckIt.com. Use the promo code NBA to get 20% off. And Grip6 Belts, go to Grip6.com slash lock for a special Father's Day offer. And of course, if you are a new listener, 
Subscribe using the Himalaya Podcast app. It's free, super easy to use. has every podcast that you want, that you need, that you are searching for. They have themed collections, shows to help with the podcast discovery. You can find everything from comedy to mysteries to thrillers to sports. So go ahead and download that. Get us and a ton of other great podcasts. Regular listeners, go ahead and give us that five-star rating. Give us that good written review and share the podcast. Spread the word. Tell everybody to listen to the Locked On Celtics podcast here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.